From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hi there, and welcome back to Out of Office. One of the sectors hardest hit by the pandemic is the travel and tourism sector. I know I can't wait to go on a vacation, and when I do, the Maldives will be at the top of my bucket list. And with that, I'm delighted to introduce you to my guest today, who opened his first resort in the Maldives 25 years ago. Sonu, welcome to Out of Office. Thank you. It's it's a real honor. Um... Meet Sonu Shiftasani, the founder and CEO of Suneva. My wife's Eva, I'm Sonu. We were, we were sort of puzzling and thinking about what to have as a name. We came up with many names and then finally someone said, well, Suneva is such a nice name. Sonu describes Suneva as the creator of luxurious and sustainable resorts. He's a pioneer, an early pioneer of back-to-nature holidays. In addition to Suneva Fushi, there's Suneva Jani and Suneva in Aqua in the Maldives and Suneva Kiri in Thailand. Now, these resorts don't just offer the traditional trappings of luxury. At Suneva, you're encouraged to slow down, to enjoy some solitude, and get sand between your toes. It's a no-shoes, no-news kind of place. And that, of course, is very healing for you. It's uh, it's very grounding to walk on, uh, barefoot. There, there are lots of studies on the benefits of just being barefoot, yeah. Now, while the pandemic hasn't been great for tourism, Sonu says Suneva has weathered the storm. And from every crisis emerges an opportunity. A health crisis a few years ago was a turning point in Sonu's life and has deeply influenced him personally and professionally and changed the way he thinks. If you get up in the morning and you have gratitude and you have love, and um, I, I read about um, the fact that you should give your cancer cells love, you know, you should be grateful to them. But, but when you have a positive frame of mind, it can completely change your whole perspective of life. I had a wide-ranging chat with Sonu, the founder and CEO of Suneva, or in his words, guardian of the culture. Here's my conversation. Sonu, welcome to Out of Office. Thank you. It's it's a real honor. Um, thank you very much. Suneva, that's a combination of your name and your wife's name, I believe? That's right, exactly. My wife's Eva, I'm Sonu. We were, we were sort of puzzling and thinking about what to have as a name. We came up with many names and then Finally, someone said, well, Suneva is such a nice name. And um, it, 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 it's, it's, it's not bad. It has just a few syllables. It's, it's only six letters. So it's not terribly long. And it, it ends with a, with, with a vowel. So we just, it's, it, things have evolved from there. And, and it is very much um, a husband and wife team. And I think that's what defines uh, l- true luxury brands. And I think that's one of the challenges with luxury today. It's, it's become very institutional. You'll go down a, a big a big street like Bond Street or, or even an airport like uh, Changi Airport or whatever, and you'll see all these names, names of people who are once passionate about making a dress or a watch or uh, a piece of luggage or a handbag and um, or a jewel. And um, all, all of these names are now owned by a few big groups. Um, 
And when you look at the windows, what they're selling is identical. So, you know, luxury and successful brands were born about by people who founded them and had a vision and were passionate about something. And so, so um, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's in a way, it's good that our names are involved in the brand. It has a lovely ring to it. Now, you describe Suneva as the creators of luxurious and sustainable resorts. What does luxury mean to you? Yes. Yeah, so um, luxury is a word that's, be, that's been misused. Uh, quite often, people would refer to objects as luxury. So sometimes you might hear someone saying, ah, this gold is a luxury or marbles a luxury or thick pile carpet. Essentially, luxury is that which is rare, that which is new to you, but also true, true in, um, in, in the way that it rings a chord in your heart when you touch it or experience it. And so that, that's, in fact, it, funny enough, um, our guiding principle, so our, our core purpose, I believe very strongly that any organization must have a purpose beyond simply enriching shareholders like Ava and I and our partners and paying employees a salary. And when you can do that, it can be very meaningful. And our core purpose is slow life, engaging and imaginative slow life. Essentially, we're offering our guests luxuries whilst minimizing our impact on the environment and also enhancing the health of our guests at the same time. And the question is how we do that. And uh, we do that by being creative and innovative, but innovation needs structure. And so our guiding principle that drives that structure, that railway track that drives that engine of creativity is this phrase, intelligent luxury. We're taking the Latin origin of intelligent, intellego, to try and understand what luxury is about. And I think when you can do that, and when you question what essentially is rare for your clients, especially when the context of our clients has changed. So I recall, you know, when we opened back in the early 90s, the people who had come to us were largely the landed gentry. They'd inherited their wealth, living in farms and big estates. They were generally, you know, uh, had access to fresh air, fresh food, space, privacy. Um, And then that changed. You had the internet revolution. You had the emergence of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, Reaganism and Thatcherism. And over the last 40 years, the successful have become urban. So if you look at the Sunday Times rich list, 90% are self-made urban, no longer the landed gentry. And so what the successful took for for granted in the past is now rare. That bit of fresh air is a scarcity. In Beijing, they close schools for three or four uh, weeks of the year. It's the same, I think, in Delhi for some weeks. Even Singapore, they have that issue because of the lack of fresh air. So it's, it's, it's a rarity in an urban context. Um, fresh food is a challenge and privacy and space that are huge premiums. So, so hence our brand offering to our guests this idea of inspiring a lifetime of rare experiences, because that's essentially what people want. And we find that nowadays, most of our clients are spending more money on experiences than products. The garages are full and the cupboards are full. So they're really focusing on experiences. So Suneva is all about rare experiences for our clients who come from an urban setting, which um, it could be as simple as just walking barefoot for a week. We take your shoes, we put in a bag which says no news, no shoes before you even arrive on the jetty. Or having that fresh salad that was plucked from the garden. We grow about 90 different salads, 15 different types of mushrooms, about 70 different herbs. Watching a movie where the stars are not just on the screen or just seeing the stars through one of the largest telescopes in the um in, 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 in wherever we operate with someone like uh, Buzz Aldrin, the second man on the moon, or even just our resident astronomer explaining 
the universe out there or, or just having a shower and seeing the full moon in the garden, listening to the hotel's iPod um, with your favorite song already downloaded on it and, and you know through the Bose sound system. But in this context where you've got water falling down, you've got nature and um, you can see fish swimming below you and you can see the moon above. Yeah, that, that's that's um, what luxury means to us. <laughs> luxury, like you said, could be a, something as simple as having sand between your toes, right? It's what you don't get. And that, of course, is very healing for you. It's uh, it's very grounding to walk on, uh, barefoot. Um, there, there are lots of studies on the benefits of just being barefoot, yeah. That's right. Now, you founded your first resort, Suneva Fushi, 25 years ago, right? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So that was very early. It's sort of you were one of the pioneers, an early pioneer of the back to nature holidays and an early champion of sustainability. What sparked your interest in sustainability? Uh, a, a lot. So firstly, um, I studied at Oxford in the late 80s. The countryside was beautiful, but it was during it was towards the end of Thatcherism. So you saw these beautiful hills and valleys suddenly turning into housing estates with 500 houses. Oh. And of course, living, um, I left, I, I, I lived outside town for the, my second two years. I had this beautiful cottage um, in one of the largest greens in England. It was literally five minutes out of, out of town. And I, I kept to, you know, I began to love um, the nature and the environment. And I'd drive into London for, uh, from time to time to see the family for weekends, you know, uh, meeting friends. And um, you could smell the pollution as you, as you got yeah. onto the M4. And then onto the A4 and the A40 as you're going down, you, you started to smell the pollution and it, you, 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 you could notice the difference. And then Eva is Swedish. So the Swedes have been green you know, for, for many years. They were, they were separating waste in the early 80s. They suffered from acid rain, the Swedes and the Germans, because of the Russians. So they've really been thinking about conservation and preserving the environment and the nature. And then we arrived... In the Maldives, we arrive at um, Suneva Fushi, which is this pristine environment, and we were determined to preserve it. And um, we really um, believed right from the outset that we weren't owners, but more uh, guardians, guardians of these places that uh, we feel privileged to look after for our lifetime and hand it over to the next generation better than how we found it. That's that's really our, our view about our properties. We don't really consider ourselves as owners. We just consider ourselves as caretakers, trying to preserve and enhance this, this lovely piece of, these lovely pieces of earth that we've been privileged to, you know, be given the guardianship of for, for our lifetimes. So, um, so that's really set us. And I think um, on sustainability, our journey, like many journeys in life and the 25 years of sustainability, I, I think the onion best, best describes, the onion best describes the experience in that um, you you sort of peel off a layer and you think you've cracked the code and you've done everything that's possible, but because it's your passion and you're all focusing on that, not and and you know I think when sustainability comes from the top, the C-suite, whether it's myself, my wife Ava, who's our conscience, our CFO who drives, you know, he's a CFO. Finance people are normally not about sustainability; they're just all about numbers. <laughs> he actually drives a sustainability team up. Uh, our chief commercial officer, Carissa, is is vegan. She's plant based because of her her views on on the impact that um, eating animals has um, has on the on the environment. So w- when you're all driving that, you're continuously evolving, and it's it's really, every time we we peel a skin, thinking that's it, there's something new. So it started, of course, with conservation 
using timbers that weren't tropical because however much it's certified, you know, for they talk about Forestry Stewardship Council timber, the tropics are in warm climates and generally in warm clients, climates, the governments tend to be slightly more corrupt. So, for example, if you look at Burma, um, the, the EIA, the Environment Investigation Agency, um, carried out a review on their Forestry Stewardship Council timber that they had exported. And they claimed they'd exported X amount. The EIA then approached the 10 main markets and they found that these 10 main markets had imported three times the amount of Forestry Stewardship Council timber than Burma had claimed to export. So our view is don't create a demand for that. Show that you can create a beautiful aesthetic from timbers that become carbon sinks and grow naturally in plantations. So bamboo. So they have a curry, there's a lot of bamboo. It, it's a carbon sink. It grows very quickly. You embed it into the, into the construction. So Nevajani is a lot of pine, sandblasted pine from North America and New Zealand, cedar for our doors. Our structural timbers are Clusiana, which is part of the eucalyptus family. And, and we've created beautiful aesthetics. People love our aesthetics. And you don't need the ebony or the wingy or, um, or, or the, um, uh, the, these other types of tropical hardwoods like balau and teak to achieve um, uh, beauty. So it was that, it was no no less, um, avoiding endangered species, no bluefin tuna, looking at um, our, our, our supply stream and eliminating waste. So no plastic straws, um, banning branded water, um, uh, amenities coming in our own ceramic jars with big refillable tubs coming from Thailand with our own paraben-free, toxic-free product. You banned plastic straws in 1998. That was really early. Yes, no, exactly. Well, it was a passion of Ava uh, right from the beginning. So we we had these, um, we had bamboo straws um, and uh, now we just have a nice paper straw, which I think works very well. So the bamboo straws were, you know, they were difficult to wash all the time. And, um, you know, there was quite a lot of wastage in, in that. We've, we've continuously... Um, uh, been evolving that um, our, our practices. And then the Suneva Foundation was born in 2008. And the interesting thing with the f- foundation is that, firstly, it's funded by no donations. Eva and I have not donated one penny. So where does the money come from? The money comes from changes to the way we do business, because my view is that if we're going to survive on this planet, it's not like, um, is the planet going to survive? The planet will survive, but we won't, because we'll render it inhospitable. If we don't follow through on the Paris Agreement at, at COP21, the, the 2015 yeah. Paris Agreement, where the world's governments came together and they agreed, which was, um, you know, a, a big um, milestone um, to agree to limit global warming. If we're going to s- survive on the planet with um, the challenge of global warming, with the fact that we've exceeded four out of the 10 planetary boundaries, according to Stockholm Resilience Center. Governments create the context, but we as companies, individuals need to change our behavior. And I think that's been the benefit of COVID in that COVID has shown that we can make a dramatic change in behavior and still live. So back to the foundation, is it the savings as a result of you changing the way you do business, the savings from that? Exactly. So we change our, our behavior and um, we did two things. So we, we, we've done a few things, but I'll, I'll share with you two examples. One is we banned branded water in 2008. So no Evian, no Vitel, even if it came in glass bottles, no water no. imported, just water bottled on site. There was a huge ecological benefit, of course, of taking a linear process and making it circular. 
But what we also found was that there was a financial saving. Our cost of water went down from 20% of water revenues to 2%. That's a huge difference. Yeah. So by using our own tap water, we saved 18% on our water revenue in terms of that cost. And that gave about 800,000 people access to clean water in, I think it's about 400 projects in 50 different countries that the Suneva Foundation funded. The other thing we did in the same year is we decided to measure our carbon. When we started to do that, we followed the uh, World Travel and Tourism Council's carbon tracker, and we found that it was limited because it only covered scopes one and two. Scopes one and two cover what happens on site. So for example, if I'm in a hotel and I turn the light bulb on, that's scope one or two. If I turn the grill on, um, that's what happens in inside on the site, on the property, but it doesn't cover the externalities, uh, your food coming in. And then how is that, if you imported beef, you know, what is the carbon impact of that beef? Was there deforestation involved in rearing that cow? Yeah, or, or the food, how do you know, were feeding the, yeah, in, in feeding the cow, exactly. And, and how do you compare that? So we started evaluating all of that, the externalities, the cost of our guests coming in, the carbon cost of our guests coming in, if they came with um, commercial or private jet, et cetera. And we have a measure, we have a tool, a calculator goes straight in there every time there's a new client reservations, put it into our data. And so we found, we found out that 85%, 85% of the CO2 emissions as a result of our being were scope three, which the industry doesn't measure. It was the externalities. So we said, well, we've got right. to do something about it. So we introduced, which I think is still the only case in a hotel company, and we introduced a mandatory carbon levy. So if you come and stay with us, uh, we quote you the rate, and then you'll have the service charge, uh, the GST, which is obviously government um, right. mandated, and then there's a 2% carbon levy. And that 2% has raised, I think it's close to seven, $8 million now for the UK charity, the, the Suneva Foundation. Um, it's, it goes into its Carbon Sense Fund, and that's funded half a million trees in Thailand, giving the local community some work, and importantly, avoiding um, soil erosion and flooding in a small way. A windmill in India, um, which is 1.5 megawatts, giving subsidized energy to the local community. And then over 20 years, three windmills. And then in Darfur and Myanmar, cook stoves. So um, in Darfur, they're risking the security of their village to find firewood. In Myanmar, some families are spending up to 30% of their income on the firewood. So these stoves burn the wood twice as efficiently. Importantly, they avoid smoke. So mm. 4 million people die a year of lung asphyxiation. They're just inhaling smoke when they're keep trying to warm themselves or purify their water or cook their food. So these are these are clean stoves, no, no smoke anymore, and a 60% reduction in CO2 emissions. So those are two examples of where we made small changes to the way we do business. We banned our branded water, we started to measure all three scopes of carbon and introduce a carbon levy. It did not negatively impact on the way guests perceive us. And in fact, most guests um, are very positive about it. We've had about one or two guests a year that insist on Badois or Vitel, and we have to go and buy it from another resort, <laughs> but very, very, very small. I think people get it. They understand, and they understand the importance of this now, isn't it? So, And, and obviously, that had a huge benefit to the communities where we, where, which we, we support. Where the foundation operates, yes. You know, I wanted to go back to what you said, the foundation, well, Suneva Fushi started 25 years ago. Clearly, yeah. the 25th anniversary turned out to be a little different than you hoped it would be because of the pandemic. 
How has the pandemic affected your business? I mean, it's the travel and tourism sector has been hit so hard. Yeah, it was difficult. Um, but funny enough, it's now better than ever. And um, how come? I feel bad about saying that. Well, I think in any crisis, if you look at it in a positive way, it can be very beneficial. Because I've gone through many crises during my life. Uh, we had um, we had um, uh, 9-11. We then had SARS. We had um, the tsunami. We had bird flu. Yeah. We had the global financial crisis. So these crises are things we've gone through. I went through a health crisis personally um, a few years back. And um, we've also had um, business crises. For example, in 1998, our plant room burnt down. And what these crises have taught me is that They've taught me to, uh, to appreciate the wisdom of Lao Tzu, that good fortune has its roots in disaster. And even when you think about Chinese wisdom and Chinese language, um, the actual word for crisis in China, it comprises two characters. Uh, one character describes danger and the other is opportunity and change. And so what I found with crisis, if you can take a crisis with a positive mind of, frame of mind and say, well, there's something to be learned here, um, sort out the danger. So of course it's, it's very scary at the beginning. So with this particular crisis, you know, we found ourselves on the 28th of March with the president of Maldives closing borders. Thailand's borders had closed earlier. And so we found that the only resorts, the only resort that had any guests at that time was Suneva Fushi with about 70 guests who decided to sweat out the pandemic actually at Suneva Fushi. He wasn't quite sweating it out, but... I was just going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was, they had a great time, in fact, and um, we, we, made, we, we, been, we all made great friends as a result of all being there together for three months. You know, it was obviously very scary. Um, borders closing, no guests, cancellations, etc. We were struggling to find a plan and put a plan together. And there were, of course, sleepless nights, and there was a lot of um, soul-searching and a lot of restlessness. And what I found with crises is that if you can make decisions that are, get the quick, uh, easy decisions out of the way, just move them away so that you mm-hmm. don't ponder on too many decisions. But then the critical ones, try and see how long you've got to decide and take as long as you can and research as much as you can. I was the same experience with my health crisis. Uh, when I was told I had cancer, I, had, I took three weeks off and I started yeah. research extensively. So I tried to take as much time as I felt I could without making the situation worse. And so that, that combination of ticking off quick decisions and pausing and thinking about a more important decisions, I think helped a lot um, and gave us the time. And so then our strategy was, we knew that the borders would eventually have to reopen because the Maldives is fortunately quite unique um, in that tourism accounts for 90% of its economic activity. They may officially say 40% of GDP is tourism, but um, that person building that house in Mali for those TMA pilots uh, who are yeah. employed by the float plane company carrying tourists. So it's 90% of activity. Since tourism started, uh, Maldives has gone from one of the 20 poorest countries in the world to the wealthiest country per capita in South Asia. Life expectancy has grown from 40 years to 76 years as a result yeah. of tourism. So tourism has been very vital. And so um, we knew that fortunately, at least in the Maldives, the government would reopen borders very quickly. And that was important to us because Thailand has a big domestic market, whereas the Maldives didn't. So we set up our own laboratory. We we bought a real-time PCR machine from Roche. They were in short supply. We managed, fortunately, to get an allocation of one. We got an extraction machine from Thermo Fisher in India. 
And then we got a Kyogen second um, test machine. We set up a laboratory. And today we're able to do 2,000 tests a day. And we're testing all the resorts in the atoll, supporting about four atolls, uh, local community. We're giving free tests to the local community because my view is the laboratory should make money. So any money we make, it goes in free tests for the local community. So I think what we've managed to do is create this, uh, firstly, one island, one island, one resort context, which the Maldives yeah. is, and promote that, and create these COVID-free environments. Because you arrive in the Maldives, having had taken a test a few days before with a negative certificate, uh, you then arrive on our island, or we escort you, uh, your barefoot butler escorts you in, the pri in privacy, uh, they keep a safe distance. They do have a mask at that point, and they're in the open air. And we know that in the open air, COVID does not spread, and the half life of the virus is like an hour in our context. You know, eighty degrees humidity, eighty percent humidity, and uh, very warm. And um, you 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 isolate in the privacy of your villa, your private beach, your pool, just for a few hours. We get the results within six hours maximum. It takes between two and two and six hours, and then you can circulate. And the nice thing for our guests. Bye is that there's been no news, no shoes, and no masks because everyone's tested once. Our guests are then tested again on day six, just for good measure. Three tests, you know, one before coming, another on arrival, and then a, a third one. And our employees are tested twice before they de-isolate. So they isolate for a week. We do a first test on day one. We do another one on day seven. And then uh, they walk around with a mask for a week and then on day 14, they do a, um, the third test and then they, 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 they can take the mask off. So you can see the, the, the smiles of our hosts. Um, our guests can invite other guests for lunch. Um, we have these uh, dinner tables with um, 15 guests, you know, just who've met the first time there and just loving it. I'm, I remember when we reopened the borders, Eva and I invited our new arrivals for lunch. We had a lot of repeat guests and we also had some, some new arrivals. It was like we were we were about 20, 30% occupancy, so there weren't many guests in house. So we invited about 12 of them. We started at 2.30 and they didn't leave till 8.30 because, you know, it, um, people hadn't interacted with others. And I think the secret of life is the relationships we make. And, um, oh, absolutely. And we've been devoid of that. So I think we've managed to create a, a, a an odd environment. And fortunately, the Maldives government has been very open to people from any country coming in, provided they come with a, a negative test certificate. So they've been very pragmatic about it. Um, they've managed to keep COVID outside, um, um, out of the atolls. Mali has had some community spread, the capital, but outside the capital, it's been um, it's been relatively COVID-free. And of course, some resorts um, are following our, our behavior, but um, I think there are about three or four resorts that are also testing everyone. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. So now I wanted to talk to you about, you know, when you, you referred to crisis and opportunity and good fortune coming as a result of a crisis and your health scare. When I was reading about your health scare, something really struck me. And you had said, you talked about your diagnosis when you first found out you had cancer. And you talked about learning to forgive the loss of life the way it used to be 
and the process of accepting your reality. This idea of forgiving the loss of life the way it used to be. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. And also, it sort of struck me in the current context, you know, a lot of people are struggling with that because we are not really sure whether life will ever be the way it used to be in a post-pandemic world. I I think um, in life, we have to continuously evolve and change. And when change happens to us, you can either look at it in a negative way or a positive way. And um, it's it's funny, I was reading a poem the other day where, it had been carefully crafted, where if you read it one way, it was very negative, and you read yeah. it the other way, it was very positive. And I, I strongly believe that, um, that you have to create a positive frame of mind. So uh, when I had cancer, um, one of the things I did, the doctor, because it was stage four, it was quite serious. Mm-hmm. The doctor said, um, you know, you've got a 50-50 chance of survival with your cancer. It's stage four. It's very serious. Uh-huh. I've booked a hospital bed for tomorrow morning. Please come in, but pack for a month. You're going to be hospitalized for a month. And you're not traveling for six months. So just, you know, pl- plan accordingly. accordingly. And yeah. uh, I, I said, pause, you know, um, uh, how long have I had this for? He said, at least 12 months, you know, the cancer has been building up. So I, I thought, well, I've definitely got a few weeks. I said, I'm, I'm going to take three weeks off to really think about this and understand it. And um, what I read was with cancer, 60%, and you're doing that, the, those three weeks off, I managed to speak to about 20 people who had cancer read a lot. And one of the things that kept on coming to me quite strongly was 60% is the mind, 40% is the body. Uh, there's a very book, huh. great book called Radical Remission by Dr. Kelly Turner, who'd seen these radical remission survivors and, you know, it sort of blew her. So at one point she just said, I've got to just take some time off and research and get to the bottom of these interesting anomalies that I've seen. And the book's nine chapters, three of them are on physical things six are on, on the mind. And, and, um, what she says is if you, if you practice seven out of the nine chapters, having a radical remission is, is, is very possible. One of the things uh, I started to do was obviously meditate a lot and try and create a positive, positive mind frame mindset and try and be grateful for everything. And I think if you get up in the morning and you have gratitude and you have love, and, um, I, I read about, um, the fact that you should give your cancer cells love, you know, you should be grateful to them. Uh, you should send them your love and just say, look, they've, they've given you, give, given me a lesson. Thank you for the lesson. I've learned the lesson. Now go away. <laughs> That's hard. That must have been hard. A little I mean... bit. Yes, uh, it, of course. But but when you have a positive frame of mind, it can completely change your whole perspective of life. So was that a, a serious turning point? Have you dramatically changed your life and lifestyle after you were diagnosed with cancer? Yes, yes and no. So um but in a positive way, in a positive yeah. way. So I find myself actually now healthier than ever. That's amazing. Uh, I, I feel more flexible. I think I'm definitely fitter. I'm definitely stronger uh, than I was three years ago, pre-cancer. I've created a lot of pause in, in my life. So I'm normally, um, I normally take calls and appointments Mondays to Thursdays. Friday, I will catch up with emails. So it's a catch-up day, but mm-hmm. no calls. So I can really catch up. And then the weekend is time for me to do what I love. And fortunately, I love what I do, you know, so my work is my love as well. So it's, it, 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 it's a happy balance. But um, I've tried to sort of remove a lot of stress. Uh, during the week, I um, eat a very strict diet. I'm largely vegan during the week. And I've eliminated some things from our diet. Um, so for example, no dairy, no sugar, white flour, white processed flour. I've almost eliminated beef. 
But then the weekends, um, I'll have a couple of glasses of wine because we know that wine in moderation can be quite healthy for you. The big issue with cancer, cancer cells love sugar. So one should uh, go, go low on the sugar, but 50 grams a day is a reasonable allocation of sugar and a glass of wine is one and a half grams. We have um, in our resorts now, that's dictated a lot of the, the approach to our food and beverage in, in our resorts. So at, at our resorts, we now have 60 ice creams that don't have sugar or dairy in them. So non-dairy, non-sugar, um, alternative to dairy, whether it's coconut milk or almond milk, or just using the, 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 the fruit itself. So it's um, it's definitely changed um, the way I, I, I do things, but but all in a better way. And um, I, I just feel that um, you know there's certain things I've had to give up a bit. You know the extensive travel. I, I enjoy traveling a lot. In a way, I've I've got used to it. I've come accustomed to it. I, I think with, it's the same with COVID. Is is we we've we've there is a dramatic change in behavior. We've had to give up some things that we we really like doing. I think we need to look at it in a positive way and just every end has a new beginning and um, grieve the old bit and get on with the new bits that we've lost. And um, that's that's my experience with, with loss is that one needs to grieve it. One needs to get it out of the system. Otherwise, it can fester there and then move forward to the new thing. How has the experience of loss changed you as a CEO, as a business leader? I think I've continued to evolve as, as, as a leader all the time. And um, I used to remember thinking, I, I remember uh, when I was young, uh, people used to say, oh, a lot of college, no knowledge. And um, <laughs> I, I, used to, I, I used to be really pissed off by that. But th there is some truth to it. You know, of course, uh, as you experience crises, as you experience life and you experience the business context and leading people, you learn a lot. And in fact, uh, I think one of the challenges we have with the democratic system and uh, politics as we know it um, today in the 21st century, is you have so many political leaders that have never really led people. Mm -hmm. Historically, countries were led by either royals who had been brought up from a very young age to lead. But of course, then you didn't have much change. You've had uh, dictatorships where the military have come in. But again, you know, at least military leaders have, to some extent, um, led, led troops and soldiers uh, in the past. And then even... In democracies, you had people who were successful, had successful careers during their lives, and then at about 40 or 50, they decide to go into politics and, and lead the country. That was the case, at uh -huh. least in Britain, in the past. But more recently, you've had serious serial politicians, and they, they leave university, um, they go straight into politics, they spend all of their time lobbying, and then they eventually end up with a top job with limited experience of leading people. And to that extent, I think that's why women do better as mm -hmm. political leaders today, because at least they lead families. You know, they look after right. a household, they're managing the kids, managing the husband, and, um, you know, just to some extent, um, leading a few people. And sometimes, you know, they tend to, to have two jobs as well, um, female politicians. So, um, yeah. What kind of leader do you hope you are to your team? And what are the leadership qualities you admire the most? I think a couple of things. So firstly, I think you need to be a good listener. People have this deep yearning for, to be listened to and to be heard. And if you can't listen to people and hear them, you can't motivate people. And I believe this, the key objective of a leader, and I tell my team that, my, our young aspiring leaders, is I say that before you go to work in the morning and before you meet anyone or have any call 
just program yourself in the morning. So every day when I get up, I'll either do yoga or a bit of gym, um, and then I'll do half an hour of meditation. I'm setting the context because I believe that when you walk into a room or walk into a Zoom call, you have to turn the light on. You have to turn the light switch on. Uh, you want people to leave that Zoom meeting with you or that room completely energized, engaged, motivated, passionate about what they're doing. So the first thing is listening to people because you can't motivate people without listening to them. It's uh, it's it's just as simple as that. So I think being a good listener is very important. And then really um, driving intrinsic motivation rather than extrinsic. So rather than carrot and stick, driving intrinsic motivation by playing on people's desire for autonomy, giving them as much autonomy as possible, appealing to their sense of purpose. So the nice thing about Suneva is uh, because we have a purpose that, as I mentioned earlier, that goes beyond just enriching Ava and I and our partners and paying our employees a salary, it does engage a lot of our hosts. So one of the things I do to turn the light bulb on is to continuously refer to our values and our beliefs. My title actually is Guardian of the Culture because I believe the key role of a CEO is to create values and a cult, um, and beliefs and language and language which obviously drives culture and that drives behavior. So that's what I try and do a lot of in the meeting to instill a sense of purpose. Um, and then giving people the opportunity to continue to learn and grow and showing that we have to continue to evolve because the half-life of our knowledge has reduced substantially in the last 20 oh. years. So, you know, when, when I graduated um, as an engineer, your knowledge that you learned at university or technical college could most probably last 20 years. Today, it's most probably five years. Right. And then it's outdated. Exactly. So one of the things that I always preach to our team is that, you know, we need to continue to learn, to continue to evolve. So learning opportunities and giving people the ability to, you know, to develop and hone their skills. And, and I think those are th things that really inspire and motivate people because fundamentally as a, as a leader, what you want is you want to engage people and you want to drive behaviors and hence guardian of the culture. Guardian of the culture. That's a beautiful note to leave it on. Sonu, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Malika. Thank you once more for your time. I really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Sonu Shiv Vasani. There's a lot to take in from that conversation, and I know I'll be thinking about it for a long time. It's the summer. Many of us can't travel because of travel restrictions. But whether you can get away or you're staying at home, I hope you have a relaxing, restorative summer. Out of Office is going to take a break for the month of July. We'll be back in August. Till then, stay well. And as always, thank you for listening. Countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.